This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. And two ride-sharing services for women, one called Shiba, Shiba and the other called Mum's Taxi, are being developed and will launch next year. The drivers will be women and so largely will the passengers. And it's a pretty interesting time to be developing a new taxi service as the laws in this area are changing. And in fact, the apps aren't even developed yet and already the Victorian Premier Dan Andrews has got behind these ideas saying it's the kind of service that's going to benefit from the new government regulations that treat taxis Uber and hire cars as one class of vehicle. Uh, George McEncroe is a broadcaster. You've probably heard her around the place, including on this station. And she's founder of Sheba and Mum's Taxi. And it's really great to have you in, George. And who knew that you would start businesses? But, you know, I of know. course, you, you're going, going in there with a splash. There's lots of interest <laughs> in this. And I wonder, I mean, maybe just tell us how it's going to work, um, you know, in a nutshell. Right. So... Sheba will work um, for all, all people who identify as women. So women and trans women um, will, if you've just got to have 100 points of ID to say you're a woman, which is why Victoria is a great place to start this because now it's a real problem solver for us. Um, so you can get a birth certificate now in Victoria if you identify as a woman, which is really fantastic. So for uh, drivers, you just, once you get our website up and running you will apply online to be a driver so you'll have to have you know your driver registration obviously you'll have to have a license to be a fully licensed driver you'll have to have ride sharing insurance you know that'll all be explained on the website what you need um the type of vehicle that you'll need to have and you know the government's got to finalize the detail on exactly what the minimum legal requirements will be and so there'll be a female driver and you'll have female passengers. So that's Sheba is a very simple one account holder app for women. And then um, the mum's taxi is an account that can be held by a third party. So that's for boys up to the age of 15 can use the mum's taxi as a family. So, so that's, that idea is that you can be at work and you can have a son who's say 12 years old, um, go to an orthodontic appointment and you can see that you can have a female driver take that child to their appointment and you can have your elderly mother going to her, um, you know, say her physio appointment or whatever. And there'll be exemptions for male um, passengers who require them will have protocols for men who have an exemption to ride with our service. Um, so a man who has a disability or a special need to use a women's only service. But if you're in a couple, you can't use our service. And there are, there are reasons for that. One is that this is about keeping our drivers feeling safe. So you know, taxi driving is a dangerous occupation and any cab driver will tell you that. But it's particularly dangerous for women drivers. So the Uber drivers that I've spoken to who are women, um, and the reason why they're only like 2% of cab drivers are female is because their passengers attack drivers. Um, and we don't want our women, if we, if we pick up a couple and the woman dr- jumps out, then you've got a woman alone in a car with a man, which is the very thing that we're trying to avoid happening for our, that's, that's the problem we're trying to solve for just this service. So if you're in a couple, use another service. There's heaps of them. Um, we don't think that's going to be an issue for people. This is just 
our option. There are some people who won't give two hoots about needing this service. They'll be quite happy to use any of the other services available. It's just an option. It's uh, not compulsory. And so this model exists in, in some other cities around yeah. the world. And, and there was some talk, I remember, of it at launching in Melbourne. I think a, a pink taxi service was being spoken about a few years ago. But that still sort of hasn't happened yet. Have you encountered any, any roadblocks or, or difficulties that, that make it difficult to set up this kind of taxi service? No. Uh, I think that was sort of, that was in 2013. It was pre the ride sharing model and that was still had the licensing issues. And again, the pink taxi model wasn't about being able to reject male passengers. So it was so that women could you pick up the option, but it never had the driver's safety in mind. So the driver's safety issue is one that I'm bearing in mind completely. So even though we will have male passengers with an exemption to ride, my drivers also have the right to not pick up men if they don't want to pick them up. So, you know, 90% of the women driving for me won't have any problem with picking up a, a male with an exemption to ride, but they still have the right to not if they don't want to. So the emphasis is very much on the female driver. So there are heaps of services for men. My business can come and go and it won't have any impact on male violence against male violence. We understand that men are more often victims of violence than women and all of that. But my service can come and go and it won't make any difference to whether men beat each other up in pubs. Um, the only people who will be disheartened by my service starting will be men who like to molest and freak out women in their cabs and Ubers. They're the only people for whom this is a bad day. Mm. And are you getting um, people coming back and saying that this is a discriminatory So Are you getting yeah, all yeah, those yeah. sorts of criticisms? Yeah, and yeah. as soon as you say, and how will it affect you, pal? Yep. they got nothing. You know, it, it doesn't, it won't stop men moving about their world in any shape, way or form. If you say to me, how does this stop you from getting from one place to another? There's just no answer. Well, it's, it's about choice, isn't it? It's, it's yeah. a product that, that has, you know, people out there who would, would benefit from it and who'd like it. And that's. Well, that's right. And, and if, if you say to them, you know, you, you can still go out in any cab any Uber. Lyft is about to start operating in October. Um, we've got GoCatch. We've got taxis. So there's, you know, there, there are four services that you will drive for and use. Um, yeah, I think you'll be just fine. I think you'll be all right. And I think, I mean, if we go to the disruption, because as you're saying, there's lots of different options now, and yeah. these just didn't exist in the past. And this, the app-based nature of it, where you can look at a photo on your phone and check that the driver is the driver that yes. is supposed to be picking you up. You can do all these things with, with Uber yeah. now, but how is, is that sort of similar? How mine like, will have the same thing. The same? Yeah. Mine will have the same thing. You'll have a driver, um, ID and all our drivers will have one extra level of safety, which is that they'll have a working with children check, which no other um, service at this stage offers because a lot of our drivers will be, uh, sorry, a lot of our passengers will be under the age of 18. Um, a lot of our girls will have this. And look, I think there'll be a lot of women who, um, like my age, who will have all the apps on their phones and they'll compare price, time of day. If my friend's really shickered, I'll put her in a Sheba. Um, other friends of mine will just compare price, availability, how long it's going to take me to get from one place to another. And they'll make a market choice based on that. Other people I know, if they've got a daughter under the age of, say, 15, will just insist that she's in a Sheba. You know, it, it'll just depend where you are, age and time. The good thing about this for regional Victoria is that um, women can set up their own transport network. So 
this app will roll out statewide. We're mapping the whole state of Victoria. So um, the other thing about this is that women can drive with their babies in their car if they want to. Um, so they can have their own kids. It's They are contractors, so they can carry their own little bubs with them um, as they drive. And, you know, their customers may or may not like it and they'll get a rating and they'll get a feedback on that. But, again, if you're in a country town and you're three of four drivers who do the run, um, I think people might absorb that quite happily into the market. So, well, well, that sort of opens up interesting employment opportunities for women who might not be able to work at particular times because they might be raising a family and, yeah. and might not be inclined to, to be an Uber driver because it, it seems dangerous and, and problematic. And, and there's that aspect to it as well, I guess. Well, that this women is the can... biggest aspect. It's truly flexible work. So most of us who do casual work understand the first time you say no to a shift. So like I'm a trained as a teacher and do a bit of casual, te- was doing casual teaching work. But the first time you say no, you can hear yourself go to the bottom of the list. I want, I want people to be able to turn their app off and know that, you know, I, I'm out for two weeks. I don't apologise. I don't say I can't show. I don't, I don't feel guilty. Um, and then I turn my app on again when I'm ready to drive again. And that's, that's what people need to be able to have in truly casual work where they don't feel like they have to panic, feel guilty, swap shifts, um, feel worried that, you know, their family needs are suddenly, you know, gone through the roof because every kid in the house has got gastro and now you're feeling, oh, no, now I've got to, you know, ring up and f- apologise and see if I can find someone to replace me. Um, you just turn your app off. And the other thing we've got for drivers, because I don't know if you know this, but, you know, Sometimes you pick up young women with a have had 32 glasses of wine and they tell you about their whole lives. And so we're partnering with other organisations to have referral cards. So if a girl tells you something that might disturb a driver, that they can refer on to other services like Casa, Lifeline, 1-800-RESPECT. So all our drivers will have referral services to other services so that when they do get home, they can turn the app off, put on a bit of... Kardashians or whatever and just chill out and, you know, not have to feel like they're carrying the weight of the world on their, on their shoulders. Um, you know, I really want it to be fun, flexible, safe, uh, means of earning income. Um, and they can drive full time, part time, just weekends, whatever, whatever they like, uh, and feel like they're having a chat. I think it's great work for people who are at home writing. A lot of my friends who are artists and trying to earn extra money, trying to live a creative life. It's a good source of inspirational interaction with the world. And uh, a lot of other people studying, you know, we're really just can't, we're just going to need so many people to drive for this service because you can see the demand mm. for it. So people need to supply their own car. Like it's that's that model where yeah, you. Yeah, or there's leasing options that are really tax effective. Um, there are some really good deals on, on leasing, leasing cars. That's actually a really good way to go because then you can claim the whole lease of the vehicle and, um, all the petrol that you use. It's really easy to see which petrol you used for the purpose of work as opposed to, you know, which was for family, my personal use and what was for the, for the car. So we've got all that information as well for people too. So, um, yeah, if people want to, you can, you know, you can make a couple of grand a week doing it, um, full time. So it's, it's, yeah, a very good earner for people, um, who want to do it 
on an ongoing basis. So, so it hasn't launched yet, though. And um, George McEnroe with us. She's the founder of um, Sheba and uh, also Mum's Taxi, two different distinctive um, uh, ride-sharing services and uh, or taxis or uh, however you like to, to call it. But you, you, this idea came before the recent announcements from the state government. Yes. So, so um, Dan Andrews straight away got behind um, Sheba and said, "This yeah. is the kind of business that is going to benefit from the changes." I, I mean, maybe explain what those changes are and would you have done this anyway regardless of the changes? Or yeah, but I was planning on starting in Sydney yeah. and okay. I've still got an application up for an exemption from the anti-discrimination laws pending in Sydney. So I thought I was going to have to launch in Sydney. So I came up with this idea on the 19th of April, uh, crying, driving down Punt Road. I'd love to know how many people have had life-changing decisions down <laughs> driving down Punt Road. Um, where I, I tried try to drive, registered for Uber and twice chickened out and thought, oh, I'm too scared to do it. Um, <clears throat> and yes, yeah, so I was thinking I was going to have to start there where it had been deregulated. And then I thought, I'm not going to have women exposed to the prospect of fines. So, and then everything just moved really quickly in, uh, in Victoria. So the changes mean that, that it's legal and I just wasn't going to have. So it's legal and also there's a, a consistency. There's going to be, um, and that, I think these, these changes come in over some time. They do. So they changes. So the $2, you know, per trip. Uh, levy comes in in 2018. But what it means is that now there are people there um, within the Department of Transport that I can speak to and say, you know, um, would these be legally okay? Would this be legally okay? And the discrimination laws are now, we're around that. Um, that's good to go. But we've got to, to be to be accused of discrimination. We'd have to show that there is not an equal or similar service available for men, and in fact, there are four. So, like the Firmwood Gym case, you know, can men access a similar or like service um, for employment or contract work? And service, and well, yeah, they can. Tops. And there's and there's examples around the world of of women's only many things. Like I remember being um, uh, uh, in Japan some years ago now, and seeing women's only carriages of trains, and yeah. uh, because you know those trains are so packed, and people are pushed up and pressed up against each other for you know sometimes a really long long stretches, and and they have been very successful there. And I think it is interesting, isn't it? That um, I mean, but discrimination's important, we can't be doing it. So, yeah, that there's options. Yeah, well, I'd rather not be doing it. And it'd be ideal if there was not um, such a, you know, such a demand for this service. But there were girls writing to me saying, I'm crying. I'm so excited that this is happening because I'm too scared to go out at night. So that's pretty depressing. But when you've got, you know, 98% of offenders in sexual offence cases are male, um, one in five women, you know, experience sexual assault. I guess you think, you know, I don't want to get into those things. I want this to be an exciting, happy venture, but I guess the reality is that's that's what people face. They Women get out of cabs before they're at their home address. They're scared of giving negative reports on other poor star ratings on other services because they're scared of... Um, the person who picked them up knows where they live. They don't want to have to go to the police. They don't trust the court system. They don't think they're going to get a fair hearing. Um, you know, all right, well, then let's build something that means that we can provide good income, a good service, and that people have as an option. And it is an option. It's not compulsory. As I said, there are lots of girls who won't give two figs about using this. But for women who want it, it'll be there. 
Thanks for coming in. Good it luck. Was an absolute pleasure. Good luck. And um, so, yeah, watch this space and um, it'd be good to check in with you, see how it's going when it's launched. And, um, and you if, can... you, if you want to register your details as a driver, just go to sheba.com.au on the interwebs and um, it'll lead you to where you can give me your name, address, and I'll put you on the database. See you again. The historian Claire Wright joins us on the phone to ponder this and many more things this morning. Thanks, Claire. And I wonder, Hi, how are you? good. And I wonder about your history education because uh, you know Dylan and I were talking earlier in the week about you know our various different history educations, and mine was like full of trade union history, and it was really great. But many others was re- mine wasn't. really <laughs> boring and mundane. And I wonder what yours was like. Well, I was lucky because I had a a really fantastic history teacher in year 12. I I always was attracted to history, and I did two history subjects in year 12. I'm not even sure whether people with schools would allow you to double up on something like that now. Um, And I had a history teacher, my Australian history teacher, who, who was actually a really mundane woman herself. She was very bland. She was very beige. Um, but when she she started talking about history, she just came alive. I felt like it lit something up from from inside in her, and and I was really attracted to that as as well as to the the subject matter that we talked about. But you know, I, I think that we got a fairly standard, conventional um, view of Australian history taught at that stage. But the thing that really turned me on, as well as this. Um, this quite electric teacher was that that we got to do a primary research project in year 12 and and that really was was my moment when I became hooked. I spent two weeks of my September school holidays. I remember very clearly when when other people were starting to you know peel some layers off and go to the beach and, and, and enjoy the holidays. I bunkered down at the State Library of Victoria and in, in the microfish section and didn't see the light of day for two weeks. And because I really fell in love with primary research, we had to write a, um, a research essay that was based wholly on our own research. And and that is the essence of history. That is the essence of, of historical practice in history writing. And I don't think that students get enough of that. And, and that's, where, that's where you smell the past. That's where you taste the past. That's where you hear the past. And, and I, I think that if more students got an opportunity to experience that, then we'd um, have less people saying, oh, hey, history's boring. And um, I, I watched a, a video with you, Claire. I think it was from uh, your appearance at the Melbourne Writers' Festival in 2014, if I'm right. But you were saying that um, what's kind of interests you, I guess, about history is that when you research, it's, you're going through material that other people may have been over in the past, but you look over it with a different eye, which we, you did with your book, The Forgotten Rebels of Eureka. And, and you said that it was about asking different questions to what had been asked previously. And that seems like a really interesting way to get into this source material. Yeah, well, I think that, that that is the beauty of the archive, is that it is not static. There's not one story to be told there. And so history is about the questions that you ask. It's it's about your way, your way in. And it's one of the things that excites me about being a historian, is that I don't know what the historians of the future are going to find because I don't know what questions they're going to pose. Every generation, um, every every individual historian brings a different set of questions because you bring your own interests. So when I set out with the um, 
you know, it, it, it didn't seem like an earth-shattering question. Um, obviously, there was some political intent in it, but it was really just the question that interested me. Were there women at the Eureka Stockade? Because the way that I'd been taught about it in school, the way that my kids are still taught about it in their school, is that the Eureka Stockade was this foundational historical moment um, where miners and the military battled it out in, in Ballarat for not very long, 15 minutes or so, but this 15 minutes became the birthplace of Australian democracy. And But, of course, we're always taught as if only the miners and the, the, the military were, were only men, that the frontier was an exclusively masculine domain and, therefore, by implication, that it was only men who made our democracy. And so I, I started with, I guess, a disruptive question, which is, were women there? And the only way to find that out was not by going to the history books, because the way that history had been written for 150 years was um, that this was an all-male um, episode. But when you went back to the archives and asked that question, well, there was a very different answer. And so, uh, and, and as you say, I, I did go back to the same archives that previous historians had gone to. Um, but I went armed with a different set of questions and therefore found different answers because I was looking for something else. And it's, it's not that I was cherry-picking. Um, it's, it's actually that women had been elated from history by the fact that no one had been interested in their presence before. It wasn't that I had to scrape and bow and, and find a new set of, uh, of um, documents that had never been looked at before. Uh, I just had to let the women in and their voices were everywhere. And it's a really interesting parallel with uh, someone else who's on, on the panel with you at the Writers' Festival for this event, Bruce Pascoe, who, who I guess employed a similar type of approach for his book, Dark Emu. And there's kind of a, an assumption out there, I guess, that um, you know early Indigenous societies in Australia were, were hunter-gatherer, but he really challenges that and shows that, that people had really sophisticated kind of farming ag agricultural techniques, which again came from source material that was there but was just overlooked. Yeah, it's been fascinating to me reading Bruce's book because um, you're exactly right. I mean, it really employs the same methodology and it, it shows you both um, the, the simplicity but the beauty, beauty of that methodology in that he's gone back again to those to those same sources, to the to the... The, the, the things that explorers and, you know, so-called explorers or the, the early settlers wrote, the same diaries, the same letters that, that other um, historians in the past um, have used to, to make a different case uh, because, as he shows very clearly, there was an agenda. Uh, there was an agenda to the case that they were trying to make, which was that this was, um, this was, a, this was a, a, a continent ripe for the picking. And they needed that to, to make that case. You had to completely ignore um, aspects of the evidence that was right there in front of your face, um, which was that Indigenous people were were utilising the landscape, were farming effectively, or that's not a word that they necessarily would have used at the time, um, but were were managing, manipulating, cultivating the landscape in a way that did not fit the European. Um, agenda of, of colonisation and so it, it's not, again, it's not like Bruce Pascoe has gone back and found some new smoking gun that no one had found before. Um, he's just approached it from a different angle.
And uh, as you are saying there, really, that the the view that uh, all the evidence that Bruce has brought to light, which uh, you know, I've read his book numerous times now because I find it so fascinating and it's stuff that we didn't know before, but uh, it, that that evidence didn't fit the narrative. But I wonder with your work, Claire, uh, you didn't go back and cherry pick, as you say, but did women behind the barricades not fit the narrative or were, did people deliberately remove them or was it just something, as you, you know, that they weren't interested in or their role wasn't seen as valuable? Yeah, that's that's the, the, really the $64,000 question. And I, I think that what happened was that um, after Eureka, nobody wanted to, to talk about the Eureka story. I mean, really after the first anniversary of Eureka, so um, it happened in 1854. In 1855, there were, there were people around the gravesites holding a small vigil, but really by the following year, uh, there's there's nobody there. Um, people just wanted to get on with the business of, of making the, the towns and the settlements and, and, and colonising that landscape. I mean, you know, it's interesting how these, these national narratives dovetail. Um, these, were, these were the people who were, who were getting about, you know, um, colonising the land from the local Wataran people. And, and, and in order to do that, they just sort of, they put the past behind them in a way and they put Eureka behind them. They didn't want to remember this episode. And it wasn't until 30 years later, really until that first, that Eureka generation, who had all been very young, Eureka was a youth movement. These people were, the average age was about 22, 23. It wasn't until 30 years later when they'd had their families and they had their farms and they had their businesses that they started to look back on this earlier period as a kind of golden age. And they started to romanticise it. And by the 30th anniversary of Eureka in the 1880s, they were starting to say, well, we need to commemorate these pioneers whose blood was spilt in order for us to have enjoyed the freedoms and the prosperity that we have enjoyed over the past three decades. And and this is then also because um, we're now in the late 19th century, becomes part of the Federation project, becomes part of uh, of creating a nation and creating a national narrative, and that was a very white Anglo masculine narrative about nation building, and so women were. Um, quite, I think, quite deliberately excluded. And you know the funny thing? The women who had been at Eureka in the 1850s and in Ballarat at that time, they saw this process going on. They wrote to the newspapers when they could see what was what was happening with these Eureka commemorations and the way the narrative was being scripted. And they wrote into the papers saying, hang on, we were there too. It wasn't just the bloke. This is our story. These were our victories. These, these were our struggles as well. And because they could see what was happening. But by 1904, by the 50th anniversary of Eureka, really, really the story had been written. And it's written by people like Henry Lawson and, and um, the founding fathers um, had written an, a, a, an Australian nationalist narrative that was a male one. Yeah, it's interesting too. I mean, I know you've written about Vita Goldstein, and but I didn't know, I learnt from you that she was the first person from the new, you know, new Federated Australia to meet the President of the United States mm. in the White House. I didn't know that. That's um, quite a remarkable history and I think this idea that Australia in, in at that time, women in Australia in that suffrage um, movement was world-leading and yet... Uh, 
is that common? Are we starting to learn that in schools? Are, are we starting to learn more about um, Vita and others and their role? Do you think? Yeah, yeah, we are because um, because these stories have started to be told. I mean, one of the proudest things that I have. Um, uh, about my work as an historian is I made a, a documentary for the ABC uh, um, that uh, screened for the first time in 2012 called Utopia Girls about how women won the vote. And and it did go through that, that five-decade fight for women to win the right to vote in Australia. And not only that, but that Australia became the first country in the world where women won full political equality with men, that being the right to vote and the right to stand for parliament. New Zealand had won the right to vote, but um, and it was the first in the world to do so for women, but it wasn't until 1919 that they won the right to stand for parliament. So this actually becomes part of... Um, of what then becomes the so- called the social laboratory of Australian political progressivism in that first decade of the 20th century, a story that we then lose because of the dominance of the ANZAC narrative and what happens in World War One. And the thing for me in making that documentary was to reinstate the the vigor and the vitality of that that um, that progressive movement because I felt that it was a story that had been lost and to our peril not just not just as a nation because we put militarism above other forms of um, of nation making but also because women had had lost the touch with this legacy of the of the fights that had got us to where we are today and and you know nothing happens because people just sit around waiting for something to happen people make change and i felt that this was a story that needed to be told i managed to to tell in this documentary and that and that um documentary utopia girls is now on the uh year 12 curriculum in in victoria as part of their history vce and um and i think that's wonderful because it is actually allowing people to have access to these alternative stories that are just as much part of our history and also should be part of our future. I think that if people don't know how history was made in the past, well, how can they make it now and into the future? And, and Claire, you also wrote an abridged version of your book, The Forgotten Rebels of Eureka, and sort of a, a teenage-friendly version called We Are the Rebels. What was the, the motivation in that? Was it to make it sort of more accessible for, for younger readers to get into this really interesting, fascinating history? Yeah, well, um, the, the Forgotten Rebels of Eureka is, uh, is not an inaccessible text in that, um, it came out of academic research. It was my postdoctoral research, but it's written in a very, um, rollicking narrative style based on scholarship, but written for a general audience. But it's a big fat book. It's 550 pages. Um, it, it requires some commitment. And I know a lot of adults are intimidated just, um, looking at it. That what they say, once they get into it, it's not intimidating at all. Um, they can't put it down, but it, it, it's certainly not something that you would imagine that, um, is going to be taught in schools. Whereas We Are the Rebels is, um, is, uh, revised. It's, it's not just a, a, a condensed version of it, but it's also been revised. I've changed some of the language. It's got nice short little chapters. It's got little breakout boxes with, with FAQs. And it'll, and it has, um, it sort of put the historical context in, in breakout boxes as well. So stronger readers might want to look at, you know, the context of what women's um, social and, and political position was or what Chartism was or, or what the 1848 revolutions were about. But if you don't want to do that, you can just read through the narrative. So it's very much about being able to... Um, 
to access that history and, and because Eureka is still taught in, in schools, it's taught in primary school, it's taught in high school and I know having and talked to a lot of teachers, they what they say is that they want to be able to, to teach these alternative narratives, to bring in these other stories, stories that they know will will inspire their kids and make history seem more interesting, but they actually just haven't got the resources to do so. They're really, you know, they're, they're beholden to the teaching materials that they have in front of them. Isn't that and interesting? So this was a way of making it accessible. Claire writes with us, and we're talking about, um, well, history, really, and making it, um, uh, giving new voices and, and more voices with Australian history. And I wonder how long these um, these stories are going to be alternative Claire, whether they'll become yeah. <laughs> normalised, because I mean the, the question I think being posed at um, the the panel that you're that you're part of with Bruce Pascoe and Henry Reynolds at the Writers Festival, it's called revising Australian history, but there is that question about whether our history is v- revisionist, and I wonder what you think about that. Is it? Well, some people see revisionism as a dirty word. I, I, I think a lot of people do. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. Um, I, I'm not. I'm not one of those. I mean, I, I just think that the history has to be revised um, because history writing is a dynamic process. It, it's it, it's um, it's written by the it's written by historians. It's written by people who who come out of um, the lives that they live and um, every day. And so the history that's written in 1963, say when somebody like, you know, Geoffrey Blaney was writing about Eureka in his, his classic text, The Rush That Never Ended, the sort of things that interested him in the 1960s, the sort of questions that he asked, being the man that he was in the generation that he was, are different than the questions that I'm going to ask now, that, that you know, a, a woman um, in in the early 2000s is going to ask. And, and that's the way that it should be. The essential aspect comes back to what I said right at the beginning about about the archive. You have to go back to the archive and you have to listen to what it says. That's where the evidence is. That That's where the stories lie. And so you don't revise the archive. Um, the archive is what it is. Uh, you can look for broader sources, and I think that that's an important part of it. I mean, we're looking to expand our notion of the archive, so it's not just the documentary sources, the, the government reports and the newspapers and the letters and the diaries, but we're also looking beyond that now, and I think this is this is the, the really exciting part, to oral history, to different forms of knowledge, to, to people who... Um, express their knowledge in in different ways and we're starting to accept that um, we, we're accepting that the archive itself is subjective and there are many ways in which it is laid down so um, you know I think that it, it's a dynamic process I don't see revisionism as as a as a dirty word um, I think that you know what Henry Reynolds was doing with his his early work the, I, I remember I studied the other side of the frontier in high school and um, it was it was earth shattering um, because he he introduced that idea of looking at things from the other side of the coin and in, in some ways that's exactly what I've done with the Eureka Stockade I've looked at it um, you know I've looked at it from the other side of the coin in terms of of the women who were on both sides of the stockade, the women who were both inside the stockade, but also the ones who were part of the government forces as well. And so, you know, what Henry Reynolds did at the time seemed um, to be shocking and revisionist, but by the time it came down to, to me as a scholar, 
it was it was just the conventional way that I would see things. So, yeah, it's um, going. You're not going to have enough time on um, on the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> Bruce Pascoe, Henry Reynolds, and Claire Wright all on a panel together. It's going to be absolutely fantastic. I hope you got your tickets for that already because I, I don't think there's many left if any for that no session. No surprises there. Uh, great to have you on, Claire. I'm looking forward to having you again one day. There's um, too much to talk about. I have, I've only asked like two of the questions I wanted to, I reckon. <laughs> but um, we're going to have to let Sorry, leave I'm, it there. I'm a chatterbox. I know, so am I, uh, as anyone else can vouch for. Really great to have you on and um, thanks heaps and enjoy the weekend. Cheers. Thanks, Thanks Claire. Yeah, and Claire, right, she's Bye. in a... <laughs> see ya. <laughs> and and our, our next guest in the studio, a very exciting guest, is um, someone who really does it all. It's uh, rapper MC Adam Briggs, known to most of us probably uh, simply as Briggs. He's released two full-length albums and an EP and is currently working on a new collaboration with Trials under the name AB Original. And you've no doubt heard some of their tracks, uh, the first tracks they've released on Triple R over the past few months. Um, he's also recently turned his hand to acting, having appeared in the much-lauded Clever Man TV series, as well as working with Black Comedy on ABC TV, and last year founded his own record label, Bad Apples Music, which is the country's first all-Indigenous record label. He also does really important work in the community, both in his hometown of Shepparton and further abroad. Broad and um, is always really active in calling out ignorance and racism, not only through his music, but on social media as well. And we're um, so happy to have you here. Welcome, Briggs. Cheers. It sounds like I do a lot. Yeah. You do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's an re- understatement. When, yeah, when you reel it off like that, it sounds like I'm up to something. Yeah, and you had time to come in here today as well. Yeah, which I, woke is, um... I woke up. I woke up. The coffee's wearing off, but it's all right. <laughs> so, so, um, so I want to start with, with Clever Man, because you've kind of recently just turned your hand to acting, and that was a really great groundbreaking series in, in a lot of ways. How did that all come about? Um, a friend of mine, like a good friend of mine, um, was actually the creator, Ryan Griffin. He was the creator of Clever Man. Um, he asked me to go and audition for a part, and I went down and I auditioned. Like, I'd never done acting outside of music videos before, but I thought, like, as a favour to him, and also, like, I was like, all right, I'll do something else. <laughs> and I went down and I auditioned, and they were really feeling my audition and they created this other character and kind of built him up um around that and yeah so that's how I got into acting I was never really um like acting was an idea but I never really um like it wasn't much of a passion of mine but I kind of fell into it that way Mm. Um, so yeah, that's what, how it began. What was it like, um, being part of Clever Man? Because it does something that no real TV series has done before in quite the same way. It uses, um, traditional stories from, from a range of different Aboriginal groups around the country and, yeah. and kind of molds it into this sci-fi dystopian landscape. Was there a lot of kind of collaboration going on in the process of making it? it on it's set? hard to say because, because it's such a, like a, a well-oiled machine when you're on set. You don't you like you just see bits and pieces of the story and stuff of what you you know of what you're part of, and like apart from reading the scripts, um, you know that's the only insight you get. Mm-hmm. So like my insight into the story um, was very limited from where I was at because I didn't get to see all the parts with um, Ian Glenn and and um, Rob Collins. But, you know, reading the script, you, you realise it was something that hadn't been done out here before. So that made it, you know, pretty exciting. Um, and also just being part of something that would be something that I would watch anyway, mm-hmm. like sci-fi, um, 
is something I'm kind of keen on and, you know, like a, a TV series that I would binge myself and being in it and part of it, you know, was pretty neat. And having, like, the Weta Workshop guys um, working on it as well, like the special effects and the, and, and the makeup stuff, um, kind of just added another level of... Um, I don't even know what, what you would call it. It's just, like, dopeness. <laughs> Have you got feedback from your peers? Like, it's something that you would watch yourself. Have, are your peers watching it? Yeah, yeah. My, like, my whole family loved it and my, my friends watched it. It was it was great. I think it was such a, a feat to try and capture into, like, six episodes um, such, a, such a massive world um, mm. and massive... But... And, like because you're not you're not only uh, touching on um, like politics of now. It's also like the in- intertwining politics of now with um, you know ancient storylines. So it's um, you know it's it's pretty masterfully done. Mm. Yeah, it's been renewed for for a second season as well. I yeah. understand. Yeah, yeah, second uh, second season, and I think they go to work on that real soon. Mm. But I got shot. Yeah, spoiler well, alert. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> See, Net. Spoiler. I mean, look. It's returning. ambiguous. Who knows? Yeah, you never that's know. Right. All the going by the storylines. Yeah, he just got I've... shot. I never said he got killed. I said he got yeah. shot. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> he got shot. <laughs> <laughs> but but you, you collaborate a whole lot. I mean, not just on Clever Man with a whole bunch of, of actors and, and different, you know, sort of talented people from, yeah. from Australia and abroad. But that track we just heard you did with Dwayne Everett Smith and, and Gurumul. And, yeah. and you work with a bunch of other other often indigenous mm. artists from Australia who don't necessarily do rap or hip hop per se but, yeah. but what you do with them seems to really work. I think because we're all on the same page um, just as friends mm. you know what I mean like when we get together we just want to make music and um, that's the whole idea behind it like I don't work with people just for the sake of working with people it's not really part of what I do um, you know I'm a big believer of, you know, here for a good time, not for a long time, so I don't do things I don't want to do. <laughs> and I, I work with people I like, you know, me and me and G, you know, Gurumal, we get along outside of music, you know what I mean? Like, we get along outside of music, same with Dwayne. Um, you know, that track in particular, you've got, when we did it live, we had, you know, Dwayne and Gurumal and Trials and myself, and that's four different black dudes from four different nations. And then, you know, in the recorded version, you've also got the B2M mm. guys from the Tiwi Islands doing, you know, their Tiwi um, chants and stuff like that. So it's a really all-encompassing kind of record um, with all the kind of different um you know, black cultures and, and nations from around the country. Mm. So have you performed that track live very often? Because I saw you do it at, at Meredith. But I think it had a, a backing track there. Yeah, yeah, we have a backing track and, and the band. Which, um, which sounded amazing. And, yeah, and it's great that fun. That was a beautiful day down there. I'm trying to think if, if me and G have done it, done it live. I, I don't think... I don't think me and Gorma, Me and Archie have done it live mm. a couple of times. Archie Roach. Um... And I don't think me and Gurumul have been able to do it live yet. I don't think. I can't think off the top of my head. Look forward to it happening. <laughs> yeah, but um, I've got like, you know, I've, I've done it with the band um, a few times. 
It's such a blur. <laughs> I mean, you're a busy man. Yeah, it's such a blur. It's like someone someone would know if I've done it live. Yeah. What I like about these, the, you know, you're, you say you're here for a, a good time, not a long time, but of that good time you put in and you go and visit young people in all different contexts. And I wonder, I mean, that sounds like it must be a passion of yours to connect with your your audience but also with um, with young people. Yeah, I feel like it's like um, definitely kind of a responsibility um, of mine to give back, um, you know, since I get given so much. And I'm in a, I'm in a, a position, I'm on a platform, an opportunity to be able to reach out. So my whole approach to that is just to be that person um, that I wish would you know was coming you know to to my neck of the woods when I was a kid you know what I mean because like when I was when I was a kid I, I wanted to make rap music but I, I didn't know I didn't know how no one was going to teach me like I grew up in Shepparton and, and you know it's not like there was this massive rap culture there who people were going to teach me how to make rap music so the whole the whole approach of that was just about being that person um, that I wish had come by. You know, like, because not even once did that happen. <laughs> so, like, just to be that person who would um, who would make tracks and, and and come through and just say just say what up and and be you know visual and be accountable and be um, you know within reach mm. and like visiting kids, like not just kids in in juvenile detention, but also kids who are on the right side of the tracks and who are doing their best to stay on the right side of the tracks um, because, you know, it's it's all-encompassing, I see it. You know, it's not it's not good and bad kids. It's just these are just... This is just the demographic. This is just the whole makeup of this next generation. Mm-hmm. So I just try to be involved. And it keeps me honest and it keeps me in touch with what they're doing and what they're listening to and, and you know, it keeps me relevant. It's it's really great in in the Vice documentary that you appear in where you visit the Reby uh, juvenile detention facility outside of Sydney. You kind of see that almost immediate respect for you. The kids kind of say, "Oh, you a rapper? Oh, that's that's really cool." And you've got that sort of in that a lot of people sort of wouldn't have. That that wouldn't speak to kids as directly as as you yeah. can. And I feel like because you know I grew up with a lot of with a lot of family and a lot of kids who. Um, who've been through those situations. So I understand the kind of households and the kind of places they've come from. And it's not, you know, it, it's not a shock to me. So I wasn't I wasn't going into really gawking at these kids. Um, I knew what kind of kids I was going to be talking to because I grew up with them. Mm. Um, so it wasn't a shock Um you know, even though the kind of offences and stuff that these kids do are, you know, they are pretty, um, they can be horrific at times. Um, I'm not shocked. Like it, it doesn't take, you know, anything away from anything they've done. But I think, like, what I wanted to do with the Reby doco was get beyond the superficial of... Um, the offence and the criminal and talk to the human side of the, you know, talk to the 15-year-old. And I think that that's the difference, you know, when you watch the doco. is like I'm not going in there to report. 
as far as I'm just going in there to create a rapport, mm. you know what I mean? Yeah, and I think that comes across. And I wonder, I mean, there's the face-to-face work and interest you show, but there's also online and you're present online. And I think, yeah. is that a similar motivation to be there, to, to be in those spaces? Or, yeah, or? I feel like, you know, when I speak out, you know, against any kind of um, BS that comes across, it's um, it comes from a place of almost necessity. It's because if I don't, who does? And I've got this platform and people are, you know, a lot of people count on me to say something because they don't get to say it. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not the most, um, you know, articulate of, of, of people all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I, um, you know, I, I, you know, and, and, but I've never, I've never tried to be anything that I'm not. It's Mm -hmm. like, I'm a, I'm a indigenous dude from from Shepherd and Victoria, and the way I act and the way I react is how I react in person. It's how I react anywhere. It's like um, you know, when it comes to issues of race, it can be quite emotional, and and um, that's how I react. And I, you know, I do my best not to be crass, but sometimes it just happens. <laughs> I mean, I. I, I, I say to people, you know, people ask questions all the time online going, oh, I don't understand this. I refer people to your <laughs> site. I do. I just go, because you are really articulate. You, you, you might say that you're not the most articulate, but who is anyway? Yeah, and I, I, I think, like, all I try to do is just talk. I talk about these issues on my level. Mm. I, I don't try to oversimplify and I don't try to you know, sound like a dictionary or a thesaurus, you know what I mean? I talk about these issues on my level as a dude who's just a regular walking down the street going to the chicken shop dude, you know what I mean? Yeah, so, and it comes across as, as, as genuine and heartfelt. Yeah. It, it, it's, you know, expressing your feelings and, you know, disgust at times yeah. at what certain exactly. people say. Exactly, and I feel like a lot of people who um, who come back and... You know, kind of who who think about challenging me on, on a lot of these stuff, and they're like I'm I'm open to it. I'm, I'm you know I'm here, but like they have to, you know I'd, I'd implore them to ask themselves like you know what have they ever had to stand up for themselves? Like what what are they passionate about that they have to stand up for? Like or is it just your opinion today, or are you really about this? Because I'm really about it. That's the difference, is I live this. This isn't just my opinion on Facebook today. No, I live this. Mm. And it's, I mean, you must know as well when, when you say those things and, and um, you know, criticise people rightfully for what they say that you get a whole lot of, you know, abuse at times and, yeah, and horrible things. Yeah, so. and like, I think, like, being an Indigenous dude growing up in the country, like a rural city like Shepparton, you know, and... Um, it's like, I've, you know, I've been, I'm trained for this, man. I've worn this since I was a kid. So anything they say, it does nothing to me. Like, it doesn't, like, I know, like, I can reel off off the top of my head all the arguments already, mm. you know, as soon as it comes through. Like, I don't even have to read the comments. And I, I, you know, I hardly do. Sometimes I just find the most concise, most racist comment, and then I'll take that one and be like, okay, Okay, this is the opinion of, you know, a dozen comments that I've read, and this is the best one. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then I'll, I'll, I'll put that one on blast. But like, 
I feel like um, because I've been through so much, you know, in 30 years or whatever, I've faced so much of it that it's just, you know, it, it really doesn't faze me. Mm. It's like I was, I was Indigenous dude growing up, you know, rural city like Shepparton, and felt all the wrath, you know, it's a staunch liberal seat. And then on top of that, I was also the youngest and chubbiest of all my cousins. So I just, like, I got both sides. I got, you know what I mean? So it, it was never, it was never like a, you know, I'm, I'm never shocked, a bit, you know, when someone comes back and says, blah, blah, black, this, racist, this, blah, blah, blah. I was, you know, I'm not, oh, my God. I, what, I, what, I, what I like about your approach, too, is it's that's the busy man approach as well. It's like, I don't have time to answer all these things. I'll go yeah, to the, like, like, cut to the chase. Like, yeah. I'll, I'll like, you know, cause, cause some racism and it's like, man, that's like a thousand comments. You know what I mean? So, and uh, most of them say the same thing. Mm. And the reality is, man, like most of the people commenting on Facebook on these things, getting involved, you know, you, you're dealing with the numbskulls of society. Mm. So, you know, like, <laughs> like majority. That's right. You know, it, it's hardly, it, it's, it's very rare you find a profound argument that'll make you sit back and go, oh, okay. Very so, true. Yeah. Social media is not the place for that often, unless it's coming from you, of course. Oh, but like, social media, I feel like it's a place to, to throw it out there and be, because like that's just part of their world. It's like, it, it, it's, it's the new newspaper, you know what I mean? It's like, it's an opinion. You throw it out there. And you let the seagulls go. We're, we're fast running out of time, but we are um, speaking with Briggs here in the studio. And um, I want to briefly get to your new project, your collaboration with Trials yeah. AB Original. So you've put out um, a handful of tracks so yeah. far this year, and they all sound really great. How's, how's that all coming along? It's been great, man. Like, the, the album is done. And now we're just, like, it's all in the, it's all in the admin stage, like all the artwork and all that stuff. I'm hoping to get it out, like, Late October, November. I just want to get it out. Mm. Um, I've, I've got a new film clip, you know, for January 26th, sitting in my email to check. It's, um, you know, which is a song with um, Dan Sultan. Um, and it's just been great. Like, you know, this album that we're making has been such a fun process, working with Trials, you know, who's a Nungan dude. From, from Adelaide. Um, and we really get to, um, we really get to flex. We really get to, like, it, it, it's pretty much a concept record. It's called Reclaim Australia. Um, you know, it's a big middle finger to the right wing. Mm. <laughs> um, and we really get to flex. You know, like, we're out there. This has never, like, this kind of record has never been done in Australia. Beyond, beyond rap, mm. like this kind of rap record hasn't been done. This kind of record, full stop. Like this kind of, just in your face, balls out, like straight to the point, kind of protest music. You know, hasn't been done like this ever. And it's it's people. Some people say that's kind of the era of protest music is is dead, but it's it's very much not, and it kind of really lives on. I think now in in rap. Yeah, in well, rap I feel like you know. Anyone who says protest music is dead probably just isn't paying attention, man. Mm. It's like it's protest music and music of of truth and honesty will always be relevant. 
And that's what we found with AB Original. People have responded to it because it's honest. It's it's not contrived. It's not anything but an honest opinion and, and an honest avenue and a music that comes from a very real place. And um, I saw you're down to appear at the Nirana Fest, which is in early November. Yeah. Um, AB Original. You've got another run of shows sort of we're once doing, the album's um, out. We're doing Workers Club on September 29th. Mm. And um, we'll also be doing, um, well, we're at Big Sound, I'm doing a keynote um, and a performance um, that night as well, the 7th of September. We're doing a keynote with um, Lindsay McDougall, the doctor, and um, yeah, we come back, and then yeah, Melbourne on the on the 29th of September at Workers Club. Well, um, yeah, definitely. Once you get along to it, if you're if you're in Melbourne or in Brisbane, if you want to head to to Big Sound and see that, it sounds um, sounds really awesome. And uh, I can't wait till the album drops. We've played a few tracks from it already. Oh, geez, and, uh, yeah, I want, I want the whole thing. <laughs> we yeah. kept you longer than we're supposed to. Really sorry. We're saying <laughs> that one. <laughs> what can you do? Yeah, what can you, you do? You could just walk out, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, if you miss Clever Man on ABC, uh, it, it, and I've and um, Ivy, you can catch it on iTunes and Blu-ray. It's all up there now. You can get your hands on that series if you somehow missed it it got a lot of promotion so you shouldn't have but if you did <laughs> you st- can still uh, I think it was launched this week so you can get your hands on it and uh, who knows if you'll be in the next series it's ambiguous who ambiguous knows. stranger <laughs> things have happened thanks Riggs this has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne truly independent community radio want to hear more check out our website at rrr.org.au